Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, Sunridge. All right. Thank you, Patricia. Hey, whether you're joining us on our live stream or you're right here on our campus, I want to say good morning and welcome to Sunridge. As uh, Jed already mentioned, this is a great Sunday to be newer, newer at Sunridge because every first Sunday we have a welcome to Sunridge. It's the last room in the main hallway on your left. So while you're exiting, you can just stop by. I'll be there. A lot of our staff, staff drop in. And uh, it's just an opportunity for you to find out a little bit more about Sundridge and for us to meet you, which is really what we want to do mostly. It probably lasts about 30 or 40 minutes. Depends on how many questions you have. So uh, I'd love to see you guys at that. And then also Stephanie mentioned that uh, we have our fall kickoff for our growth groups. And I just want to tell you a little bit about them. If you've never done a group at Sunridge, uh, basically uh, they meet either once a week or twice a month in homes. We're constantly saying to our church, look, our goal isn't to keep you in the big room. We We want you to move to a living room where you can have that connection. And most of our groups do a sermon-based discussion, which are just the questions that are on the back of your note sheet. It's a great way to process what we're learning on Sunday morning. So uh, we'd love to love for you to step in. It's, uh, we used to call them life groups, but we changed from that because we didn't want you to think that they were a life sentence. And uh, so uh, here's why you should try one. Here's why you should just take you know, a little bit of risk and, and go to one um, is because it's going to make such a profound impact on how you process the Word of God. You know, you, you can hear it taught on Sunday morning, and that's great. You know, like kudos to you for showing up every Sunday. But it's a whole other level of gathering face-to-face with people and talking about what you've learned and how it applies to your life. And there are a lot of nuances in how people experience the Scripture. And that's where it really starts to open up. And so we encourage you to do that. And of course, as Stephanie said, you make great connections. So, you know, there's a point in people's travel at Sunridge where you go from like you're attending church to like you're belonging at church. And that's what we want for you. So give it a try. Okay, so let's get started. I want you to imagine with me today that you're, uh, that you're back at your wedding day, okay? And uh, I can do that. In fact, I'm glad I had this sermon because it's reminding me that this week, Cindy and I are celebrating our 45th anniversary. So thank you. That applause is for Cindy, I realize. So now I want you to remember how in love you were on that day. I mean, it was your dream come true, right? You found the person, your person that you dreamed of all your life. And at your ceremony, you stood face to face with each other and you made these vows that you were going to love and cherish each other till death do us part. And when you're saying that, you're holding hands, you're looking straight into each other's eyes. You might have even cried a little bit when you repeated them. And then you had the reception. And uh, that was tons of fun, right? And then you went on your honeymoon to some exotic place. And there, can you imagine, when you're there on your honeymoon, can you imagine 
cheating on your husband or your wife. I mean, yeah, you just said that you'd be faithful for life. You just promised to love each other forever. You make these vows and then you cheat on your honeymoon. Now, I'm sure that's happened, you know. Uh, somewhere in the world, it would be super unusual. But don't we all agree that that would be a colossal fail for us? And I mean, it's up, it's up there at the top, right, of failure or maybe down there at the lowest of fail. Well, it's a pretty good description of what happens with the Israelites in Exodus 32 and just how fast and how far someone can fall. So before we, uh, before we look at that, let's just kind of jump in and get our bearings. Remember that Moses was the guy that led the children of Israel out, of, out, out from Egypt. And after having done so, they've been camped at the base of Mount Sinai for just a little under a year. And it's there that Moses is going up and down the mountain. He received to speak with God and he received the Ten Commandments and other laws there. And then as we saw last week uh, in Exodus 25 through 30, God gives him these verbal blueprints, these verbal instructions of how to build the tabernacle, a place where they can worship God and where they can connect with God because God desires to dwell among his people. And then uh, we haven't looked at it, uh, but in, in Exodus 35 through 40, they actually build the tabernacle. But sandwiched in the middle between the instructions and the building here in Exodus 32, we have this scene, and it's a pretty famous scene uh, from your Bible. It's, uh, it's the scene of the golden calf. And as Stephanie just read, Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God and he's left his brother Aaron in charge of the people down in the valley. And before, God, before Moses went up, he, he told the people, said, Joshua and I will be at the top of the mountain for 40 days, but we'll be back. And in the meantime, wait here and I'm going to leave Aaron and her in charge. And if you need anything, see them. That's in Exodus 34 or Exodus 24. But the people grow impatient. Exodus 32, 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, he took so long. They're like, what the heck is he doing up there? And they're in their defense, I've never been to Mount Sinai. But uh, I understand it's 7,500 feet in elevation. But people also tell me that the peak of Mount Sinai cannot be viewed from the valley floor. It's kind of back. So they can't see Moses and Moses can't see them. And you remember, like the, the whole peak of the mountain is, is shrouded in smoke and fire as Moses meets with God. So um, in spite of all this, at least, at least the Israelites follow one instruction that Moses left them because he said, if you guys have problems, go see Aaron. And he'll handle it. And they gathered around Aaron, the people did, and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So this fellow is like saying, this guy. It's like, we, we don't know what's going on with this guy. We don't know what's happened to him. And it's here that you have this dramatic turn. Um, and it's the last thing that you would think what happened? They want Aaron to make false gods for them. 
It's like they're saying, since there's no Moses to follow, we need another thing to follow. And Stephen, in his speech in Acts 7, talks about this scene, and he describes it this way. Their hearts turned back toward Egypt. So in Moses' absence, they're feeling this uncertainty, and their hearts go back to when they were enslaved in Egypt. Now, had Aaron been a stronger leader, he would have confronted them right then and there. Or at least denied them. But instead, he tells them, bring all your jewelry, all your gold jewelry to me. And in verse 4, he took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. So Aaron makes them a golden calf. We don't know how big it was, uh, but we know that through archaeological discoveries that they found these bronze bulls and calves uh, from this period in this region. So the Israelites are already mimicking um, some of the pagan nations around them in their practices. Or maybe this is a leftover from Egypt, from one of the gods that they knew there. And And Aaron tells them, these are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. Isn't that crazy? I mean, wow. He, Aaron completely caves to their pressure. He totally compromises himself here. And he goes even further. He builds an altar in front of it. And he says, tomorrow, we're going to hold a worship service in front of it. Together. And in verse 6, so the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. So they worship kind of in their typical way in front of this idol. And then they have a little afterglow. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, this is not our soup potluck in the NPR. This is saying that they gorged themselves. And revelry means they were, invo- they were drunk And there was an orgy going on. Then the camera switches here in the story. And it goes to from down here in the valley to the scene on the mountain. And Moses has, at this point, he has no idea what's going on. But God tells him in verse 7, he says, Go down because your people who you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. You know that God almost always refers to the Israelites as his people or my people. But you notice now they're Moses' people? <laughs> Just like you do with your husband or wife when your kids are acting out. You're like, your kids have a problem. And God tells them they totally abandoned their faith. They made a God and they said, this is the God who saved us. And you know what? Moses doesn't want to own them either. In verse 9, he says, I have seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. So God and Moses both agree that these people are challenging. They are EGR, extra grace required. (laughs) And God is so frustrated with this that he threatens to wipe them away. In verse 10, he says, now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you, you Moses, into a great nation. Now, if time alone from Moses, without Moses, was a test for the people and Aaron, then this is a test for Moses. I will make you into a great nation. 
In other words, what God is saying here is, I will start over with you, and you will become the new Abraham. Because these people are too corrupt to be savable. I mean, they cheated on me in their honeymoon. Right after they vowed to be my people, after I've rescued them, they're giving the credit to a false god. But in contrast to the people, Moses passes his test. He's not about himself, and he intercedes, as, he's, has done, as we've seen him do throughout Exodus, on behalf of the people. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. He said, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And what Moses is doing here, he's saying like, God, you should not do this. And what he's saying with your people is not what we do to one another with our children. He's reminding God of his history with these people, that they are his people. And he reminds him, not, he's not calling out their reputation. He's reminding God of his own reputation. Moses is doing what a great leader does. And you can see his loyalty to God to the people, and you can see his compassion. You know, sometimes you have a situation where people are genuinely good, but they're bamboozled by a corrupt leader. And then other times, as here, you have a genuinely good leader, but the people are fickle and they, won't, they don't follow. But God's design for human beings and societal structure and in any organization is for leaders to be people of character, and those under their oversight to be genuine and good. That is how God has designed human beings to flourish. And here's something really interesting. In verse 14, after Moses has his conversation with him, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. Now the word relented here, relented, you may have different, a different version of the Bible, NIV, uh, some NIV versions say he changed his mind. If you have a King James Bible, it says God repented. But the Hebrew word here, nakamed, means to console or comfort oneself or to take a deep breath. It's like God, in his conversation with Moses, went, okay. He took a step back. And I love this picture of how Moses and God interacted. I love the picture of their relationship. Now from here, uh, Moses acts as a good leader should, should. And number one, he deals with the idol, the golden calf. He comes down from the mountain. He picks up Joshua on his way down, who only went part of the way up, and they return to the camp. And as they enter the camp, Moses sees all the craziness going on, and he's carrying the, the Ten Commandments, these stone tablets, and he throws them to the ground, shattering them. Not in a, in a temper tantrum, but as an illustration of how the Israelites were breaking the commandments before God. And then in verse 20, he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it the powder, scattering it on the water. And he made the Israelites drink it. Why does he make them drink it? I... It does not explain it. It's a practice that we don't know about, but it does remind me of when my mom would wash my mouth out with soap. 
I know that that's child cruelty now, but it was standard practice at the time. So you get the point. So he deals with the idol, and then number two, he confronts Aaron's lack of leadership, his failure. Verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them? You led them into such great sin. And he's, he's calling out Aaron as being a self-serving leader. And you know, this could have been a teachable moment for Aaron, but Aaron is pathetic here, and he blames the people. Verse 22, don't be angry, my Lord, Aaron answers. You know how prone these people are to evil. He totally puts it on them. They have responsibility, yes, but he's distancing himself. He's a weasel at this time. And then look at this in verse 24. So I told him, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> it just happened. I know I'm picking on a relationship as parents with our children here today, but it does sound like my household when my kids were younger, you know, it just happened. How did the lamp get broken? It just happened. How we get this stain on the carpet? It, I don't know. It just appeared. Where'd this idol come from? I don't know. It just came out of the fire, God. Moses doesn't even dignify Aaron's lame excuse with an answer. And then after dealing with Aaron, number three, he deals with the ringleaders of the rebellion. And verse 26, so he stood at the entrance to the camp and he said, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites, the, the priests, the people who... Um, directed worship and took care of the temple or the tabernacle at this time, they all rally to him. And here Moses gives all the people uh, an opportunity to repent. And he, tells, and he tells the Levites to strap on their swords and execute those who do not return or repent back to God. And you might, you might ask, it's like, man, that seems awful extreme. But not when you consider the grievous sin that occurred in their camp. Remember, the only people that are in jeopardy here are the people that spurned God's mercy. One, they rebelled, and then they spurned God's mercy when Moses offers it, and they refuse to come forward. So they refuse to repent, and after all God had done for them, they refused to stand on God's side. And worse, they rebelled against God, and worse yet, they led others to do so as well. Moses then praises those who are faithful in this moment. He reminds the people who remain who they are and acknowledges the courage that they demonstrated and their confidence in God far and above their circumstances. In verse 29, Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today. Remember, that's that's same word as holy, to be set apart. For you, for you, you, you were against your own sons and brothers. And he's blessed you in this day. Moses realizes how difficult it is to stand apart. To stand with the Lord when everyone else is going in the opposite direction. They chose God over what the crowd was doing. And they chose God over their own fears. So that's, that's as far as we'll go in the story today. And I know that some of you, especially if you're not a regular attender here at Sundays going, okay, what are we going to make out of this? You know, what does this mean for you and me? And uh, I know there's a lot here, 
One thing I can promise you is there won't be a golden cow here in, on the worship state on the stage next Sunday. But at first glance, it seems kind of like a pretty straightforward story, doesn't it? It's just outright rebellion. I mean, this is their first time without Moses to oversee everything, and they're making false gods and having orgies. But what caused that? That's what I'm most interested in. Was it they're just weak and sinful people? Maybe. Was it that some of them were truly wicked? Um, it's possible. Was it that human beings are just susceptible to the loudest people in the room and they're just going to follow? Maybe. But here's what I think. I think they were scared. I think they were used to having Moses as their leader and his absence was a little too long. They felt vulnerable and um, they got afraid and the uncertainty that they were living in. Their future got ambiguous and they panicked. I mean, they thought their lives were going along a certain way. This is how things work. This is how the camp goes and Moses is here to lead us. And then when he wasn't, they were like, oh man, what's going to happen to us now? And those concerns turned into anxiety. And that anxiety caused them to lose their confidence in God. When the outcome wasn't clear, nor the path they would take, they just felt like they got to do something, anything, even if it's the wrong thing. Remember, Moses said, wait here and I'll be back. And they were okay, no problem. But it was longer than they expected. It was scarier than they thought it was going to be. All that smoke and fire on the mountaintop. And all their what-if imaginations got the best of them. You know, Moses is probably dead. We're just sitting here. What is he doing up there? What's happened to this guy? And fear of what could happen now got the best of them. We have no leader. So I don't know about you, but when, when I think about this story through that lens, it sounds familiar to me. Because I don't know about you, but in times of uncertainty or questioning, does your confidence in God ever wane? Do, in those moments, do you find yourself tempted to compromise your faith? When God seems absent from your life, do you, do you feel like you need that next big thing to put your confidence in? You need this thing, this tangible thing for you to touch, to name as a person or, you know, a, an amount of money in your bank account or you can see the long haul of your career. Um, and in those moments, are you tempted to, to kind of like shift your relationship with God instead of sticking with your beliefs or your standards or your values and trusting God for the outcome, you kind of, you collapse. This is the big idea for today. When confidence in your, in your situation is at its lowest, your confidence in God should be at its highest. When confidence in your situation 
is at its lowest. Your confidence in God should be at its highest. Now, isn't it true, this is an irony for sure, that we have more confidence in God when we know exactly what's going on? What kind of confidence is that? Look, I've said before, fear is good. You know, I don't buy into the, all the faith over fear stuff that everybody says. Fear is good. It keeps you alive. It means your brain is working. But fear can also cause you to react irrationally, do crazy things, like make a false god. I'll give you an example of what fear can do to you. Um, I usually work out at the gym. I know you can't tell that I work out, but it's just slowing things down at this point. Nothing grows, nothing gets, I don't use more weight. It just keeps going down, down, down. Anyway, you don't need that part of the story. But, um, but I also have weights in my garage. And uh, they're those bumper plates, you know, I can drop them and they bounce and it sounds really heavy when there's only tens on the end, you know, and the neighbors think I'm really doing it. Well, I keep them all stacked next to the wall in the garage. And uh, so one morning I went out there to work out and I started like, you know, scattering, had the lightest ones on top because I use them the most. And then the heavier ones are on the bottom. So I'm kind of like scattering because I was going to do an exercise that I could use heavier weights. And I got down, so they're all kind of laying around me and I got down to the last plate and I went to move it and a roach came running out. And yeah. And I wish I had a video of it because I leaped in the air <laughs> and then I landed on all those lighter weights that I had scattered on the floor. So I was, you know, like doing this. I said a quick prayer. Um, it might have sounded like bad words, but it was a prayer. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just a little roach. I, knew, I mean, I did see his fangs, and he was leaping for my throat. <laughs> but there was no reason to react like that, right? He just startled me. He scared me. And, you know, he met his demise. Um, I quickly stomped on him. But that was even like a dance because he was moving around. So... Don't you look at the Israelites in this moment and wonder, like, how could they have even done this? I mean, after all God has done for them, every time he comes through for them, he rescues them. And now they're making a golden calf and saying, this is the God who rescued us. Often our faith fails because we think God has failed us. When our confidence in God fails, it creates kind of a domino effect in our life, in every area of our life, including our spiritual life. So when our confidence in God fails, some things happen. Number one, we fail to trust God's word. We fail to trust God's word. The first thing that happens when we're in, in, in a, a place of uncertainty or fear um, is we start to question what God said. It's as old as the garden. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? I mean, right there. Does his word really say that? Why don't we just make another God so that we can get through this? If, you, if you're a Christian, I know that if I ask you, do you believe God's word is true? You, you would probably say yes. But 
Do you really trust his promises and his ways when you can't figure it out? When it's different than what people around you are doing or saying? Or are you tempted then to say, well, it, I, I believe it, but it doesn't apply here. Are you tempted then to start ignoring passages that you've always believed that are now making you uncomfortable? Or have you noticed um, things that you were so sure that you believed that you believed them until your situation changed? And then you started to ask yourself, is God's word really true? When confidence in God fails, number two, we fail to rely on God's plan for our lives. When Moses was delayed in their minds, says, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Isn't that a great summation of what happens in our minds when our trust in God fails? Well, we don't know what's happened. So we better do something. Anything. When, when we're in that space where we're fearful or uncertain about outcomes, where we're feeling pressure from our culture or from our friends around us. Don't you start to question if God knows what he's doing or if he's doing anything or if he cares at all? And I know that, again, the Christian people that I'm talking to today, if I said to you, do you believe that God has a plan for your life? Most of you would say, of course he has a plan. From life. I totally believe that. But do you realize that part of the faith life is to rely on God's plan, especially when we can't see the outcome? That's, that's Abraham, right? You know the story of Abraham, Genesis 12:1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And that, that sentence tells us that Abraham had to leave what was familiar and comfortable and start in a journey that he did not know the outcome. And Abraham is, is the father of faith. He's known for that. Isn't that one of the hardest things to do? I know that many of you are in the turbulence of all kinds of transitions in your life. Some of you are like you're upside down in your career. Or you, you started a new job or you're hoping to start a new job. Some of you in your family life things, the dynamics have changed. Some of you are in a new phase of parenting. You've never been in this territory before and you're struggling. Some of you are military families that you go through the turbulence of a transition every couple of years. You got to move somewhere and you don't know what it's going to be like. You've never been there. But the U.S. government didn't ask your opinion on where you were going to go. And so they sent you. Um, some of you are like entering retirement. And you're like, man, I, you know, am I going to be able to do all this? It's, we need to trust God's plan even when we don't see the outcome. When our confidence in God fails... We also, we fail to consider the grace of God. We fail to consider the grace of God. The jewelry that the Israelites fashioned into a golden calf. Do you remember where that jewelry came from? Remember, they left Egypt with nothing. They had to pack up and go. But something happens in Exodus 12, near the end of the chapter, 
God prompts the people of Egypt. They are so ready for the Israelites to leave that God prompts them to give them jewelry and valuables to take with them. And if you think about a a people traveling through the desert, they can't carry gold bars and cash. They don't have bank accounts. How how was it that God was going to provide wealth for them as they went into this phase of their lives? He had the Egyptians give them this jewelry. It was nothing that they had earned. It was totally God's kindness and grace to provide for their future. And they didn't even realize it when it was happening. And as they wore that jewelry, as they traveled, or they kept it, you know, somewhere safe, um, it should have reminded them constantly of what God had done. In fact, the psalmist in 106.19 describes it this way. Look at, look at this. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. So the psalmist is referring to this scene. And they exchanged their glorious God for the image of a bull which eats grass. And check out verse 21. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. And isn't it easy... In those moments of crisis or uncertainty or when we're afraid, isn't it easy to forget God's grace in our lives and just to focus on all the negative things, the struggles that we're having in our marriage, the resources that we don't have, that other people have, all the ways that people have disappointed us, our relationships, our careers. It's like, and we, we stop thinking about the grace of God and we miss all the amazing things that God is doing right there in this moment. We also, when, when our confidence in God fails, those resources that God gives us, we fail to use, utilize our resources for the glory of God. We fail to utilize our resources for the glory of God. Isn't it ironic that the, that the very thing that God gifted the people with, they used to fashion a false god? But also, not just that, like that's, that's like next level, right? But think about this. Think about how Aaron must have had creative skills in order to be able to make this golden calf. So he, he knows how to sculpt. And he wastes all of that on fashioning a golden calf. So he wasted valuable resources. And then he used the talent that God gave him to make an idol. And he vested all this time and his leadership effort in things that had no redeeming value. In fact, it was the thing that he was investing these resources in and his time and his effort and his gifts and skills undermined God's purpose. When we forget the grace of God in our lives, our life and fear can gobble up every bit of our time and our effort and our resources. Last, when our confidence in God fails, we fail to worship the true God appropriately. To worship the true God appropriately. You see, false worship is to worship the wrong God or a false God, right? But there's also inappropriate worship, which is to worship the true God in the wrong way. And what the Israelites did here is they blended their normal worship in the beginning with their little cow god. And you wonder, how could they be doing that and not see how incongruent that was 
with their relationship with God and what they knew to be true about the true God. Now let me say, I'm sure it was popular, I'm sure it was fun, and I'm sure it felt good. But afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That does not sound like that worship service created Christ-likeness in them, does it? And as their leader, Aaron was totally willing to go along with it, to capitulate to what the crowd wanted him to do. Now, can I just say that when, when the church, this is, you're going to hear true blue sunridge right now. When the church gathers to worship, who is it for? It's for Jesus, right? What is it we're supposed to be doing? Of course, we're not going to get drunk and have an orgy or make a golden calf, but I think that there are some things, some trends in the church today, I think that we, could be, we need to be concerned about. Because the bride of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ. And when we gather to worship, we gather to worship Him and to learn from His Word and to encourage one another in our faith and anything else. Any other effort is a failure to worship God appropriately. It is a corruption of God's intent. And it will not result in people who are reflecting their character and nature of Jesus. All these problems that the Israelites have stem from one root problem, and it is the lack of confidence in God. And on that level... Can't all of us identify? I don't know where you are in this moment in your life, but there might be something that is eroding your confidence in God. And if your knees have been a little shaky lately, you're in good company. I mean, right in the beginning of the Bible we see this, and it's throughout history, and it's still going on today, because waiting on God is one of the hardest things to do. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite living 3,500 years ago in the Bronze Age or you're a mom and dad here in the Temecula Valley in 2023. So what do we do? And you know, I, I like to turn everything super practical and that's what I'm going to do. You know, when I read Psalms, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalms, I also, I, I often read them through the lens of, of the psalmist. I try to get into their head. And, and sometimes you know, ex, you know what it's referring to, a story in the Bible. And um, often the psalmist seems to be expressing this really bold faith. But I think more often, maybe this is just me, but I picture them more processing out loud. Kind of saying the things that they want to believe or they, they want, they they're kind of like trying to bolster their own faith. It's kind of catharsis. It's kind of reminding themselves of what they believe about God, but they're pouring out their anguish in the middle of it. And that's how I read David's psalm in Psalm 27. And it starts this way. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, doesn't that sound like a really bold statement? Doesn't it sound like David is like, yeah. But 
Doesn't it sound like there's something that he's afraid of while he's saying that? And you know, if you read this whole psalm, we're not, we're not going to take the time to do it today, but like the whole middle, it's all of his anxieties. Starts with this bold statement, Lord's my God, who, who will I fear? And then the middle is all his anxieties, all his fears. He just pours them out. And then the last line of the psalm is this, verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Now to me, it seems like David is bolstering his faith. He's beginning with this declaration and ending with a similar declaration, but in the middle, like a sandwich, it's the meat in the middle that counts, right? David's fears are, are then, they're bookended with declarations of his confidence in God. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want to close with a process that I think will help any of us that are struggling with our confidence in God right now. I'm going to put a slide up on the screen and just like just four points right in a row. And uh, these are in your note sheet if you want to fill them out. I have a great God. Number two, he's in control. Number three, he has perfect timing. And number four, he can be trusted implicitly. So just write those things down and then I want you to think about them. You have a great God. So I want to ask you, what do you believe about God? Is the, is the God that you believe in the God that brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt? That brought Pharaoh to his knees? That split the sea? The God that overcame death through his son Jesus and his resurrection? I have a great God. And that great God, he's in control. Do you believe that God is in control? Or do you think that he's absent? Do you think he gets caught flat-footed sometimes? Or he misses appointments or, or forgets things? Or is this great God in control of our lives? And there's certainly things that we want him to do that for his own purposes he doesn't do. But do you believe at the bottom line that God, God is God and he's in control? Because that great God that is in control, do you believe that his control and his greatness is perfect in his timing? While we're waiting on God and we're saying, come on, God, like I need that job. God, I, I, I need this person to change. God, I, I need my divorce to be final. God, I need, I need money in my bank account. God, I need my kids to turn around. And, and we're praying those things and saying those things. But sometimes we have to wait, right? What do you believe about God's timing in his greatness and control? And if you have a great God and he's in control and he has his perfect timing, do you believe that he can be trusted Implicitly, because that's what it comes down to, right? If you're an Israelite at the base of Mount Sinai and, you know, you're just kind of lost, you're fearful, do you, do you believe that in that moment you can trust God with what is going on in your life or, you know, what isn't going on? 
Do you believe those statements? Because that is all the difference right there. So I have an assignment for you. This is your homework. It's easy. When you go home today or maybe later this week, I want you to take a piece of paper out and I want you to write the thing that you're most concerned about right, right now, today, the thing that you're fearful of, the thing that keeps you up at night. And I want you to look at it. And when you do, I don't want you to make a cow god. I want you to write those four statements that we just put up there. I want you to write those underneath it. And after you do that, I want you to look at the thing that is most concerning to you. And I want you to say those four statements out loud. Not in some type of positive thinking thing, but like a prayer. Like a prayer to God. And when you do that, I think what you're going to see is in this situation where your confidence in God, where, where your confidence in your situation is at its lowest, you're going to see your confidence in God be at its highest. Because you're going to remind yourself of what David reminded himself of so long ago. And you'll be able to be strong and take heart and wait for God. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for the example that we have in all these Old Testament um, events and stories that they're so relatable to today. And I pray that uh, for those that are here today or listening or watching online, that our fears would turn into confidence in you and that we would relinquish the control and um, our confidence even in ourselves and hand that over to you and that we would see you work in ways that we would not have been able to see unless we had trusted you in that moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you guys, thanks for being so attentive. Let's stand and worship together. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.